0: As we get into Psalms, we'll be in Psalms 101 tonight, Psalms 101. So if you have your Bible and like to turn there or use the pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to Psalms 101 is where we'll be tonight, a Psalm of David. So you're familiar with David, so we'll be looking at Psalm 101. You know, sometimes as we live life and different things happen, we these things that take place in our life sometimes really have a way of getting our attention. Has that ever happened to you? You ever had something that happened and uh, you uh, you really it reset your thoughts and maybe restructured the way that you approach things? Uh, maybe it changed the way that you even thought about certain things. And so as we look at that tonight, I want you to have that imagery in your mind of how oftentimes life throws things at us that really resets the way we see everything. Maybe it causes you to refocus on the things that really matter. Uh, Maybe it causes you to realize that there are some things in your life that really need to change. And so as these events happen, uh, we look at those events and we, we try to find meaning in those. What is it that God is saying to us? What is he trying to show us? Well, David had one of those moments among many, really, uh, that caused him to question everything in his life. Now, maybe, maybe you've been there before. Maybe you had uh, someone uh, have something very traumatic happen in their life. Maybe you had something traumatic happen in your life. Maybe you had an experience to where you saw, you witnessed something that was very traumatic. And it really changed your perception. of of reality, I guess you'd say, of the way things happen and the way that you viewed things. Well, David had this. You see, David, as we pick up the story with David, he has just become the newly minted king of Israel. So it wasn't without labor that David gets to this point. Of course, you know, we don't have time tonight to recant the life of David, but he had gone on this run from Saul and, you know, Saul's trying to kill him. And then Saul ends up dying. David becomes the king of Israel. And now David, of course, is very famously known for being a man after God's own heart. And so as we study the life of David, we see that that was God's uh, description of him. And it's because David's greatest desire was God. It wasn't that David was perfect, and we'll see uh, that tonight. Uh, It wasn't that David always did the right thing. It wasn't that... Uh, David was God's favorite because he just chose him. David pursued God. David's uh, desire, his greatest desire was for God. And so what David wanted to do was David wanted to move the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem to be nearer the presence of God. Now, tonight, hopefully we would all agree that that's our desire right to be closer to the presence of god that god would draw near to us james chapter 4 verse 8 says draw near to god and he will draw near to you we would all agree that that is certainly the christian's greatest desire is to be closer to god and so david's desire was the same david wanted to be cl- wanted to be close to god in the old testament the ark and the presence of god were almost synonymous And so David says, well, if I can move the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem, then I can be closer to God. I can be where the presence of God resides. And so in 2 Samuel, uh, we'll notice some scriptures here in a second. The Old Testament notes the presence of God and the Ark of the Covenant. You'll remember um, Samuel and Eli. Uh, This is the same Ark that Samuel was in the same building with when God spoke to him. Remember, he goes to Eli and said, hey, did you call me? And Eli says, no, uh, go lay back down. And when you hear the voice of God speak and say "It is I speak, your servant listens. And so Samuel did that, who was the prophet uh, during David's time. And so this is the same Ark of the Covenant. All right. And so David wants to move this back into Jerusalem. And so there were some specific directions as to what that looked like. The Bible says in Leviticus, I'm sorry, in Numbers chapter four, it says when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, as the camp sets out or when they begin to move after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So they were given very specific instructions. The holy things of God, most certainly the Ark of the Covenant, they were not to touch. He says very specifically, they must not touch, all right? It was never to be put on a cart. It was only to be put on man's shoulders, and it was only to be carried by a certain family. So David wants to move this Ark, remember, and so here's what David did. He put the Ark on some oxen. And he begins to journey with it. This is the famous part where David finally gets it into the city and he begins to dance. And his wife says, hey, why are you being all silly in front of everyone? And he says, well, I'll become even more dignified than this uh, for my God. And so this is that same interaction here. So David's trying to move this ark into Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant. And he puts it on oxen, which he's not supposed to do. And they're bringing it into the city. All right. You got that image in your mind. This is what's going on. And the Bible says that when they came to the threshing floor of of Nacon, that Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and he took hold of it because the oxen stumbled. Now, that makes total sense to me. You would probably agree with that tonight, that if the most holy uh, ornament, if you will, the Ark of the Covenant, which uh, assumed to preside the the presence, the very presence of holy God, if it is about to fall, I'm going to do whatever I can to stop it. Right, You're going to do whatever you can to stop it. And so here's Uzzah who's walking uh, close enough to see this happening. And he sees the oxen stumble. And when he begins to stumble and it begins to fall, he reaches out, sticks his hand out to stop it. Well, what happened? The Bible says in verse 7, it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the Ark of God. Can you imagine the scene at that moment? The Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God has just been steadied, it has been prevented from falling. Everyone, again, we all would agree that it makes the most total sense for us to reach out and try to prevent that from happening. And yet the man who does that, <clears throat> he, he sticks his hand out, touches it. And the Bible says that the anger of the Lord was kindled and he died right there on the spot. Can you imagine what people were thinking and saying and doing at that point? Now, we don't have the privilege of knowing exactly how he died. You know, did he just instantly fall down or, you know, what happened? But it's very clear that it was quick And it happened on the spot, right there beside the ark of God. Now, this was one of those moments to where everyone asked the question, what just happened? Here we have this great desire to move closer to the presence of God. David is God's chosen man to be the king of Israel. And he's doing a a very, we would say, valiant effort of trying to get that ark into Jerusalem. And yet, because of one man's, I guess we would say now, error of trying to hold the Ark up, all of a sudden now he lay dead and no one wants to do anything at that moment, right? That's one of those nobody move moments. And so David's trying to figure out what does this mean? How could this be possible? God, you know, our desire, you know what we want to do for you, God. And now if we think about this, we see that God gave specific instructions for the things in which they were to do with these holy items. And yet David, even in his right motive, took the wrong approach. And someone paid their life for it. And so what's David's response? Well, a couple of verses later, the Bible says, David was afraid of the Lord that day. Well, I mean, yeah. Amen, right? So would you, me, and everybody else on the planet. We would say, well, I'm terrified now because I don't know what I should do and what I should not do. What is it that I need to be doing that God would approve of or that God would not strike me dead in the moment for? And so David says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, again, we have the wonderful privilege of having all of the word of God combined together in this neat, tidy little book that we can just open up and say, turn to page so-and-so, so-and-so, and we can see exactly what God wanted us to know, Right. David had the instructions, of course, David was uh, well-versed in the Old Testament up until this point, and so David knew what he was not to do, and yet David chose another route, and Uzzah died for that. And so now David says, I don't even know what to do anymore. And so the question that we wanna answer tonight is this. It's the same question David asked. If God took this so seriously, how could David ever rule blamelessly before God. If that was so serious to God of do not touch the holy things and it began to fall and he stuck his hand out and he died instantly, what in the world does that mean for us? Or said another way, do we take sin as serious as God does? Do we take sin as serious as God does? So here's the question. What if... God takes things far more seriously than we do. What if God takes things far more seriously than we do? You see, after all, the Bible tells us even in the New Testament, we we reference the Old Testament here. But even in the New Testament, you read in Acts chapter 5, there was a husband and wife, Ananias and Sapphira. And they sold some land and they brought some of the money to church. And hey, what a great tithing passage for a pastor to preach right of a baptist church only uh but they say hey if you don't give all your money to the lord then look what happens you just drop dead on the spot i'm kidding it's a joke we don't <laughs> just a joke right and so what what do Anani- ananias and ananias and teach us that i mean you see that they walk in at different times oh yeah this is all we have and they say are you sure this is all we got and then the spirit of god kills both of them at separate times. Right? Because they lied. Or how about King Herod in Acts chapter 12? You know, at the beginning of Acts 12, he wants to kill Peter. And so he puts him in prison. And then later on in Acts 12, Peter uh, is broken out of prison by the angels. And then Herod stands up at the end of Acts 12. And uh, they, uh, the people that are around him are shouting that he's like a god. And then guess what happens? At the end of Acts 12, the Bible says that King Herod dies by worms. Because he tried to take the glory from God. Now, these are just a couple of examples of where people instantly died in Scripture by not taking God seriously. So, here's the question that we want to explore tonight What if every word that you speak and every action that you take does matter? What if it matters? What if everything that we say and every action that we take has giant implications? Because if we were to interview Uzzah or King Herod or Ananias and Sapphira, if we were to bring them up here and ask them, hey, um, does it matter what you say? Well, yeah, it matters a lot. I cease to exist because I said this. Or Uzzah would say, I cease to exist Uh, and and King Herod, because I did this right, they would say, yes, everything that you say and everything that you do has massive implications. You see, what happens, I think, especially for New Covenant believers, which of course is us, is that we would say that we, uh, we receive the grace of God, which is getting what we don't deserve, that we receive the grace of God. And I would even say that sometimes grace obviously on the positive side, grace can cause us to run to Jesus. I mean, but think about it. You're getting what you don't deserve. Isn't that amazing? But then the other side is that you have distorted grace that the enemy uses that can tempt you to take advantage of grace, right? That you would say, well, I'm forgiven. So just this one time, you see, you've, heard the very popular saying before. It's easier to get forgiveness than permission. So the question is, does that work with God? You see, if we were to ask these examples that we gave, they would say, no, it's pretty hard to get uh, forgiveness when you're not living, right? And so David's response here was to reevaluate. It was to reestablish. It was to commit. You see, David's love for God, specifically the presence of God, was the number one priority in David's life. Now, of course, I would assume that for many of you, hopefully that is also the same, what you would say, that the presence of God is number one priority in your life. And so what David was compelled to do is he wanted to do anything and everything that he could for to be in the presence of God. And David made a colossal mistake that cost uh, Uzzah his life. And so David began to reevaluate that. And so as David is writing uh, Psalm 101, David is recanting. He is thinking about what the Bible or or what happened here. And we read in Psalm 101, verse one, it says, I will sing of the steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? So David is writing this and he's asking the question, God, when will you come to me? When will the Ark of the Covenant reside in Jerusalem? And so he's thinking about uh, his response. And so he says, God, I will sing of your steadfast love and your justice. You see, as David thinks about love, love compels us to do a multitude of things in our lives. Love compels us to do A multitude of things. The compulsion of love is typically, though, towards the things that we will do, right? It's the things that we will do. Love causes me to do things. Now, you know, you might would argue, well, there's some things that love causes me not to do, but love typically is on the positive side, right? It's the things that I will do. Like if I love my wife, then I'm going to buy flowers, right? I'm going to remember our anniversary date. Right. Those are things that we say I will do. I will do things to show my love and affection for my spouse. If I if I say love compels me to do that, they're positive things They're things that I will do. And so the same is true for David as he reflects on the things that he will do in response to God's love. And so he's as he's writing Psalm 101, he is at the very beginning. He says, because of God's love, as we'll get into here are the things that I will do. And so he says, I'm going to sing of your love and justice. I'm going to make music. I'm going to ponder the way that is blameless. When will you come to me? And so as we look at this love that David is talking about, and as we ask the question, what if God takes sin more seriously than we do? I want to challenge you with just some very simple things tonight. But the first thing is the things that we declare with our words. What are the things that we declare with our words? So David says, I'm going to sing of your love and justice. I'm going to make music. And so David asked the question at the end, when will you come to me? And, you know, so he's referencing the deliverance of this Ark of the Covenant. And he uses the word here, chesed, which means steadfast love or said another way, loyal love or uh, loyalty and love. And so what he's doing is David is communicating this language to indicate his response to God's love. So David is responding to what God is saying to him and his desire to be in God's presence. You see, with great love comes great responsibility. You see, for us, God has loved us with such a great love. And so then with that great love comes what? It becomes a responsibility to to carry that love, to participate in that love, if you will. And so David first indicates that his responsibility is to God himself. You see, I think a lot of times the world misunderstands the love of God that they take, as I mentioned grace earlier, that they take the love of God and the grace that Uh, the Lord gives us and provides for us and they go the other way with it. So they say, because of grace, I can do fill in the blank with the sin. But David's first, he's talking about, look, I'm not looking at man's responsibility. How am I responding to God? You see, so often our decisions are based upon perception and or our reputation. Now, David said, here's the things that I will do. I will sing of the love and justice of God. I will make music for the Lord. And so David saying, here's the things that I'm going to do because I'm doing them to God. And I think so oftentimes it is so easy in the religious circle to do things out of perception and reputation. Unfortunately, I wish it was not that way, but it is so true. That we do things that other people perceive as good, and it, it nurtures our desire to be approved and to be seen. You see, oftentimes people believe that they can talk about other people as long as the person that they're talking about doesn't find out. Maybe you say, well, I can do what everyone else sees, but I can linger in the things that other people don't see. Right. If I, am I the same in front of you as I am in front of everyone else? Am I the same in front of you as I am at home, which we'll get to in a minute? You see, it's based on perception. And what David's saying here is, no, I'm going to sing of love to you, O Lord. Now, in other words, my responsibility is vertical first. It is to the Lord God first. You see, you can really tell a lot about people personally by how they live at their house. You know, that's one of the things that we believe in in our community group is that you should spend time together and you should spend time together at each other's houses because I get to know a lot about you and what you value and what's important to you and how you live. And I learn a lot about you when I'm at your house, right? And so in our community group, that's a big deal that we want to spend time with each other in each other's houses. So you can really tell a lot about a person by where and how they live. You can also tell a lot about a person by... How they communicate with God, when you hear people pray, when you're around people 's response to different things that they happen that happen in their house, you can really tell a lot about how they perceive reputation. You see, right is not right, and wrong is not wrong because I say that it is. That's the debate today, right? well, what do you think is right? Well, what do I think is right? Well, why don't, why don't we just meet somewhere in the middle that there's no ops, uh, there's no, uh, guarantee resolution. There's no standard of right and wrong. It's just whatever I think it is. It's based on perception. And as perception changes, so does right and wrong, right? That's what's, I mean, we can talk about this all day. You see, I don't have to question how people will respond to my actions. If my words and my actions are based on what is right? Right. I don't have to wonder, will you still love me if I do the right thing? If I'm doing the right thing, isn't my allegiance to what God desires before it's to what you desire? You see, God placed a moral code within every single human being. You know what's right and wrong. Every person knows what's right and wrong. You don't have to tell someone that it's wrong to murder. They know that. Right? You don't have to tell someone you can't take something that's not yours. Everybody knows that. It's not because they were taught that it's because we have a moral code written on the heart of humanity. And so our expectation and our responsibility to right and wrong rest solely upon our response to Jesus. It rests solely upon. So my responsibility is whether or not I believe that Jesus really is the son of God. Because if I believe that, then I'm going to abide by the standards of which the son of God sets, right? But if I believe that perception is reality, if I believe that culture determines my, my acceptability, if you will, then what I'm saying is that I love Jesus, but I'm more interested in being accepted than doing what God has called me to do. You see, it doesn't have anything to do with the expectations of others. God's desire for us is that we would live our our best. uh, We would do our best to live by holy standards because like David, our desire is to follow Jesus. So David is saying here that he's going to focus on the way that's blameless. All right, there's a lot of things that we could say are wrong. I mean, certainly there's more wrong than right in our world today. But David says, in spite of those things, I'm going to focus on the way that is blameless because I'm compelled to respond based on God's great love for me. And so he recognizes how serious an offense sin is to God. You see, Paul writes it this way. We're starting this Sunday in 2 Corinthians And this is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for the love of Christ controls us, or other translations say compels us. And so David says, because of God's love, I am compelled to respond with my words a certain way. He says, I will sing. I will use my words to declare God's greatness. And so suffice it to say, our words matter, right? The things that we say and do, God cares greatly about how we say it. And what we say now, granted, are there times where you or me, or maybe I'll just say me. Maybe there's times that I want to say things I shouldn't say, right? Sometimes people make me mad or sometimes people do things that I don't think they should do. Sometimes I have my own internal sin that I want to say things that I don't need to say. I mean, am I the only one that, that feels that way? Right. And so, but here's what the Bible says. Paul writes this in first Corinthians. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. So there's times where I want to say something and I realize, you know what? It's not very helpful for me to say that. Now, my flesh is is saying, hey, you need to say that. You're going to feel so much better when you say that. And then thankfully, the Spirit of God says, hey, wait, time out. No, no, no. Your allegiance is first to God. It's not to the flesh. And so you've got to do what satisfies what, what God desires for you. Psalm 19 says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. And so we have to be focused on what it is that we say with our words, first of all, that we would look at the way that we speak. There's a famous song by Toby Mack. Uh, it's called Speak Life, and it talks about speaking the life of Jesus into those that are around us. And so David says, I will speak. Here's the things that I will say. And he says, I will ponder, he says here in the latter part of that verse, I will ponder the way that is blameless. You see, as David is saying, here's the things I'll say. And then number two, he says, well, here's the things that I'm going to think, the thoughts that I'm going to have. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, he says, you are what you think all day long. Have you ever noticed that? That if something happens, goes wrong, makes you mad, bad situation, whatever, it just catapults Right. It just dominoes. And all of a sudden, one bad thing turns into another bad thing. And it's because our thoughts have very powerful impact on the way in which we live our life, because our thoughts turn into words. Right. And our thoughts begin to direct the things that we hear and the things that we say and certainly the things that we do. You see, Paul says this in Philippians 4, 8. Uh, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's just, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's commendable. If there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. You see, as we focus on saying what we should say, it starts with thinking the things that we should think. And so David says, I will ponder the way that is blameless. You see, it's not just the power of positive thinking. It is the power of godly thinking that we would focus on the things in which God would have in store for us. And so David's saying here, when we are reminded of God's steadfast, loyal, unwavering love, it changes the way that we think. And so the words that we declare, the things that we declare with our words have a tremendous impact because it starts with the way that we think. And so David says, because of everything that's happened, because it's totally made me change the way I see things, I'm going to focus solely upon what God says. Because remember, what God said is what David disobeyed, which ended in Uzzah's life coming to an end, right? You see how that worked? So the same thing can be true for us. And so David said, I'm going to go back and I'm going to refocus on everything that God said. And in doing so, it not only changed the way that he talked, but number two, it also changed the way that he walked. It changed the things that he did. He goes on to say, I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Now, those are big words. Right? Right? I mean, look at what he says. He says, uh, evil will not cling to me. A perverse heart will be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. I mean, those are, those are big words. You see, David's deciding that it, if it is serious to God, then it must be serious to me. And so he declares, here's the things that I will and I will not do. You see, the first thing that he says here, he says, well, I'm going to have, number one, integrity in my house. He says, I I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will have integrity. Well, what what does that look like for you and for me? I remember one time, I've told this before, I was preaching uh, at a church and uh, I told told a joke about uh, the music. uh, The guy got up, this preacher got up and he said, if I had all the beer in the world, I would pour it out in the river had all the alcohol in the world. I I would, you know, whiskey, all the, all that I would pour it out in the river. And so as soon as the preacher finished preaching, the music guy got up and he says, all right, turn to, you know, him, whatever. He said, we're all going to sing. Shall we gather at the river? Right. And so, you know, I laughed. I I think that's a hilarious joke. And so after it was over with, I finished preaching and I was, you know, I stepped down, I was, uh, walking out towards the back and this little boy came to me. And he said, uh, Pastor Matt, Pastor Matt, he said, you remember that joke that you told about uh, having all the alcohol and pouring the river? Yeah. And he said, well, Deacon Joe's got a a bunch of beer in his refrigerator. And I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, what do you say to that? And I said, well, all right, you know, just walked away. Right. So the things that we will have integrity that we won't show up here and pretend to be someone that we're not. Hey, newsflash for everybody in the room you're all sinners. We are all sinners, right? None of us has gotten this thing figured out. None of us are perfect. And so David says, the first thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to have integrity in my house. So what does that look like? What what does it look like to have integrity? Well, number one, it, it means keeping your word that your yes would be yes. And that your no would be no. That when your kids and your family and your spouse, when they they hear you say something, that your word is your bond. That if you say you're going to do something, then do it. If you say, hey, I'm going to get off at 5 and I'm going to meet you at home and we're going to have a family night. Then leave at 5 and go home. Right? If you say, well, we're going to do this or we're going to have that or you say one thing in public but you don't say the same thing at home. That's what integrity is. Is keeping your word. That whatever you say publicly would be the same thing that you say privately. Not only keeping your word, number two, and this is a tough one for some people, but it is to admit when you're wrong. To have integrity in your house means to be who you are, and that is a sinner. Now, I'm not saying that you should openly sin because you're a sinner. What I'm saying is that you should admit that you sin because you're a sinner. Right? That you would say, look, you know what? I made a mistake. When is the last time you made a mistake and you apologized to somebody in your house because of it? Right? People in your family need to know that you are not perfect. They already know it, but they need to hear you say it. Right? That you would say, hey, look, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have said that. I spoke out of turn. I spoke out of anger. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? That's having integrity. That's being who you actually are. And number three, that you're inside would match the outside. Look, don't show up here and pretend you have it all together and then go home and live like the devil. You're not not helping anyone. You're actually hurting a lot of people by doing that. And so David says, look, I'm going to have integrity in my house. I'm going to be who I am. I'm going to be honest about who I am. And I'm going to keep my word in doing that. Here's a good rule of thumb. If you wouldn't do it in public, you shouldn't do it at home. You shouldn't do it. So number one, he says, I'm going to have integrity in my house. Number two, he said, I'm going to guard the things that I see. I'm going to guard the things that I see. So <clears throat> here's the question is, what are you seeing? What are the things that are you looking at? Are they things that edify the kingdom or are they things that pull you away from the king? Are they things that satisfy the flesh or are they things that satisfy the spirit? In the world in which we live, you can see anything that you want at any time. That's just how this world is. And so you have to have boundaries in your mind and in your heart and with your eyes of the things that you will not see. That you have to guard your eyes from those things. It is not how you feel or what you want. It is what is right. And so if David's pursuing holiness and David is pursuing to be blameless before the Lord, certainly there are parameters that David said of, of him saying, I will not look at these things. Things, So you have to guard the things that you see. And then number three, he had boundaries as to who he lets in his circle because of how they affect him. Look, there's people in your life that shouldn't be in your life. This has nothing to do with blood relation or anything. You know, we've talked about boundaries many times. But you have to have solid boundaries of knowing who you are in Christ. And you have to have strict rules about who you allow in and out of your life. Just just anyone who wants to be in my life is not coming in my life. It doesn't matter the credentials and it doesn't matter the scenario. I know what's good for me in my life and I know what's good for my family. And I'm not just going to allow anybody to bebop into my life and be a part of the the things that I'm a part of. It's not going to happen. Here's what the Bible says. Jesus said family are those who do the will of God. And so those are the people that I want to spend time with. And if you're distracting me and my family from doing that, then I can't be with you. I can't be around you. If you're not edifying me and helping me to grow in godliness, then I can't allow that to be a part of my life. But so oftentimes we allow old relationships or even family relationships to be present in our life. And what it does is it continues to be a drag on us pursuing holiness for Jesus. So he had boundaries. He guarded what he looked at. Because he declared that he would have integrity. So he goes on in verse 5. He says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. So here's all the things that he won't do. He says, well, I will walk with integrity. He says, "I, I, I won't be with those who have a perverse heart. I will know nothing of evil. But I will destroy those who slander their neighbor. That have a haughty look. That have an arrogant heart. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. David was serious about what he was going to do. And rightfully so. If you had been there when Uzzah died by the ark, you would say the same things. It would cause you to reevaluate everything. And so David begins to revisit all of the things that he'll do. He wants to destroy those who use their words as weapons. Those who look down upon others. He says that he wants, those who, uh, he wants to dwell with those whose walk matches Their words And so David sets these parameters or boundaries of the people that he will allow in his life. What we just talked about. He gives you a a recipe for that. Well, what do those people look like? Well, he he gives you clear instructions on that. And so as we look at this, we would say, well, you know, that makes a lot of sense. That he would change that because he saw how serious God's word was. And this would have been a great ending. So as I read Psalm 101 and... Knowing David and, you know, we did the life of David not too long ago and knowing all, you know, all the things that we know about David. You begin to think maybe you've been here tonight and you said, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're talking about David, right? We're we're talking about David, as we said, you know, David, a man after God's own heart. But what you're thinking is. But there's also that other David, Right. That that David that made a giant mistake, that David that didn't guard his eyes, right? I know that's crossed your mind. We're talking about David pursuing righteousness and holiness, and and you're making David out to be someone who's awesome and someone who never failed and someone who never made any mistakes. And so as I began to wrestle and, and pray through, all right, what does this look like? Because this is what David said in Psalm 101. You read it. What does that mean for David's life? How is it possible that we would talk about David and yet we know what we know about David? You see, it'd been a great ending. High standard of expectations. If, we all, if all that we knew about David stopped at 2 Samuel chapter six. You see, for us, we would, we would walk away tonight convicted in the areas of our lives in which we fall short. We'd say, you know what? I do need to have more boundaries with who I let in. My life. I need to have better integrity in my house. I need to right some wrongs. We would walk away saying, "You know what? I need to be more like David." You see, we would commit to doing something better. We we would say, "You know what? I need to change some patterns of behavior in my life," and all justifiably so. But a commitment to behavior is never a lasting catalyst for change. I mean, all those things are true and right and and worthy and hopeful that you would walk away seeing the life of David that we've talked about in Psalm 101. And you would say, you know what? In fact, I do need to have more integrity in my life. That it is true that I need to have better boundaries. I need to guard the things that I see. I need to set restrictions on my television or computer or whatever it may be or my phone. And that I need to be more intentional with my pursuit of holiness. All those things would be great things. But a commitment only to behavioral change is never a long-lasting change. You see, David, just a few years later, committed the sin that he's most known for. Adultery. Bathsheba. And there were people around him. There were people that he vowed would walk blamelessly who enabled him to do it, which proves my earlier point. You see, this is what the Bible says in 2 Samuel chapter 11. It says, It happened one late afternoon when David arose from his couch and he was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent, and he inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So someone else told David, no man, she's she's married. And so David sent messengers and took her. She came to him and he lay with her. So David said, I'm going to put these people in my house. And they're gonna be blameless, and these are the people I'm gonna walk with, right? These are people that he vowed that would walk blameless. And yet, it says that David sent messengers and they brought Bathsheba back to the palace. So I ask the question what does all this mean? How is this possible? Right, that clearly David's not a a good judge of character if the people that he said, I'm gonna put in my kingdom are going to be blameless and yet they enabled him to do this. Certainly it's all on David. We don't know their name for for just reason. But here's the thing. Here's David making this colossal sin in his life. And we would look at this and say, I've gotta do better. Well, no human being, regardless of intentions, can ever live up to the perfect standard of righteousness. So what this does for David, what this does for us, is that it exposes the depravity of our heart. And the magnitude, listen, the magnitude of our desperate need of the intervention of Jesus in our life. That David, in his humanity, said, here's all the things that I will establish to prevent me from doing the things that I shouldn't do. And yet he did the very thing that he shouldn't do. You see, I think there's a clue in all of this. A common thread. When you look back to 2 Samuel, you see that it says, when David arose from his couch and then... In 2 Samuel chapter 6, we go back to where we began with Uzzah. And it says, and David arose. Same exact language. Interesting, isn't it? David arose. And Uzzah, it says that he arose and went with the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab. All right, pay attention. Which was on the hill. And look who's there. It says, Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart. Hmm. So David is sitting on the top of his palace. You've heard this message a thousand times. David is sitting on the top of his palace and he arises, he stands. He, that word means to establish or to stand. David stands up and he sees Bathsheba. Same exact language. David arose and he went with all the people to bring the Ark of the Covenant. And where are they bring it? They carried the Ark of God on a new cart and they brought it from where? They brought it from the house of Abinadab where his son Uzzah lived. Uzzah, the same one who stuck his hand out and stopped the car. Here's the clue. Interesting, isn't it? Here's David using the word arose in both to describe David. It indicates a pattern. It indicates a pattern. You see, both David and Uzzah had become content with complacency. My, oh, my. If that doesn't describe the church today, nothing does. Content with complacency. Uzzah had the presence of God that resided in the ark in his house. So every day when he would come in, he knew the ark was there. He he saw the ark. He knew the ark of the covenant was present. And so here it is, every single day. It's just like you and me, right? Every single day, we come in and we see God's Word sitting on our table or on our desk or on our nightstand. And we see the very presence of the words of God. And you know what we do? We become complacent with the words of God. That we say, oh, I didn't get to read my Bible today. And oh, it's been a month since I've spent time with the Lord. Or oh, I'm not involved in the things that God calls me to do. And why is that? Because we arose That we have stood in the place of the world and allowed complacency to take the place of holiness in our life. And we we have allowed what is common, or rather, what is holy, to become common in our life. We've allowed what's holy to become what is common. The ark had been in the house, and Uzzah lost reverence that it demanded. He allowed the holy to become common. In his heart David allowed what is holy to become what is common in his heart. You see, David said, Here's a, "I'm not doing that. Oh, I, no one will serve in my kingdom who doesn't pursue God. And yet, just five chapters later, we see, we see the pursuit of holiness turn into complacency. He's not even going out to battle anymore. And so the question that I would ask us tonight is this. What battle am I not involved in? Where am I sitting in complacency instead of pursuing holiness in my life? Is it with the things that I see? Is it in the words that I say, the places that I go, the people that I hang around with? Where am I allowing complacency to be okay in my life? That I'm not growing, that I'm not moving, that I'm not becoming who God wants me to be. That I'm okay with the mundane, that I'm allowing the holy to be common. That church is no longer a priority for me. That following Jesus and him sanctifying me, that I'm not putting all of me into D group I'm not letting people know the places that I really struggle. I'm not allowing the things of God to transform me because I'm only letting you see what I want you to see. That the holy that God desires in your heart and in my life, in this church, to be paramount has become very, very common in the lives of a lot of people. That their pursuit of Jesus is now only a pursuit of acceptance. You see, the Bible says in Leviticus 10.10, you are to distinguish between the holy and the common. And what's happening in our world today is it's all the same. It's all the same. Content with complacency. Jesus had a lot to say about that. He said, I know your works in Revelation. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, you've heard this before, and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Is is that the challenge tonight? That we would say, God, is that me? God, is it that you do actually take things more serious than I take things? That I've become complacent in my pursuit of holiness? You see, Psalm 101, in my opinion, was written to set the expectation of pursuit. That those are the things that we would pursue in our life. You see, David knew that he would never lead a perfect life blameless life, but he took serious the things that God takes serious. You see, just two Psalms later in Psalm 103, David writes, He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, and so great is his steadfast or loyal love towards those who fear him. You see, Sin nor perfection defined David's life. It was his pursuit of God that defined his life. And so my challenge for you, my challenge for us tonight is that you would not settle for mediocrity in your walk with God. Do not allow sin to become common in your life. It is serious to God and it should be serious to you. Do not allow, allow sin to derail God's plan for holiness in your life. God saved you. God redeemed you. God set you apart. He set us apart for a reason to sanctify us, that we would pursue holiness. Regardless of what you believe to be true about your life, God has very high expectations for you, He believes in you and me. There's things that he desires to accomplish in and through you and me. I mean, think about we started tonight and what did I say? This team is going and this team is going and, and this, these pastors are with the students and we had these with children. Look at all the things in just the last two weeks and in just the next two weeks of which God is doing in our life and pursuing him. Look at that. Isn't that amazing to see how God uses those things? And so our challenge is not to be content and say, All right, well, that's them doing that. But we would say, God, what is it in my life, in my circle, in my sphere of influence, in my workplace, in my home? God, how can I continue to pursue you? How can I continue to reach for holiness, the thing that which you've called me to? You see, for Jesus, tonight we would say that Jesus didn't settle. When we settled for sin, but he went all the way to death to redeem us from sin. And so tonight I want to encourage you just as David began in very first part of Psalm 101. He says, I will sing of your steadfast love forever. Is that something that we would say tonight? That we would sing of God's steadfast love and justice. That we would ponder his way, his ways that are blameless for us. And that we would commit to pursue holiness that is only achieved through the implanting of his spirit inside of us. Amen? Amen. And that we would ask God to show us, God, what are the ways that we become complacent? And God, would you enable us, would you empower us to pursue the holiness that you intend for us to pursue? Amen.